We're in a series in the Sermon on the Mount, and today we're talking about worry and anxiety. Worry can be defined as allowing our minds to dwell on difficulties or troubles, real or perceived, to feel a sense of unease about an uncertain outcome. So at the risk of distracting you from hearing anything else I'm going to say, what is it you are worried about today? What's consuming your attention these days? We can probably all think of something. Is it money? You're feeling pinched financially? Is it the health of a loved one? If you're a parent, chances are it's about your kids, regardless of their ages. Or maybe it's the future. What if this happens? Or what if this doesn't happen? When we start to get worried or anxious about things, we can feel it even in our bodies. Our muscles get tense and tight. Our heart starts pounding or racing. We feel nervous, restless, on edge. We can lose sleep, have trouble breathing, become irritable. Even my dentist can tell when I'm stressed because of how I'm grinding my teeth. Worry is something we can all relate to. Whether it's an undiagnosed anxiety disorder, the most common mental health issue in the United States today, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, or whether it's more mild or brief periods of anxiety not requiring medical treatment. It's an equalizer. It affects men, women, rich, poor, elderly, and youngins. And so I hope my comments today are helpful but I'm really aware they may not be sufficient. I'm not a psychologist. If you're experiencing anxiety that's crippling your ability to cope with ordinary life or routines, I wanna encourage you to seek some help. And uh, I'm happy to provide resources for you. I hope you'll join us for the next hour to give a little more help than uh, what I can say today because I'm bound to what our text is, which is Matthew 6, 25 to 34, where Jesus commands us, do not worry. Now, I'm going to be honest. I've had a bit of a love-hate relationship with this text uh, in the past. As a worrier, I'm on the edge of my seats. Help me, Jesus. How do I do this? And on the other hand, there are some parts about it that have um, felt simplistic or out of touch. But in preparation for today, I've come to see it more, as to borrow Dale Bruner's phrase, as a comforting command. In other words, it's a command, all right, but it comes from someone who knows us, who made us, who loves us, and who wants what's best for us. It comes from the wisest person who ever lived. And by heeding his words, you and I can actually learn how to reduce our anxiety and live more fully and joyfully in the present and who doesn't want that? Listen as I read Matthew 20, Matthew's chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Can someone turn to that in our Bibles? We're going old school today, so no slides this morning. Um, and so if someone would turn to that in the Pew Bible, I forgot to look up what page that is, so I can tell you. <laughs> or you can use the... Um, 1477, Kevin Montgomery, you get a prize. And Kevin teaches our students. Aren't you glad we entrust our students to him? He knows his Bible. Well done. Uh, or you can use the text printed in your sermon notes there. Okay, hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 6, 25 to 34. 
Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his splendor was not dressed like one of those. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today gone and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I want us to look first at what Jesus is not saying here. Because I think his words have been misinterpreted and misused. Second, we're going to look at the two main points Jesus is making about how we can live with less anxiety in our lives. Along the way, I hope you'll hear some practical tips on how you and I can live with less anxiety. Are you with me? So let's start with what Jesus is not saying in this passage. What worry isn't. First... When Jesus says, do not worry, he does not mean, do not do your part. (laughs) He is not forbidding planning or forethought here. Now I know this may seem self-evident, but I have been surprised over the years how many people cite this verse as a license to be lazy or not to do work or not to take appropriate measures when faced with a challenge. Think of Hakuna Matata, right? He's totally not doing anything. Some people are more predisposed to be laid back, not take a lot of initiative. And when you add to that the fact that the old King James Version and a couple other versions translated verse 25, take no care for your life or take no thought for the morrow, you can see how this could be taken to an extreme. I once knew a man who did not want to work to provide for his family of five because, as he told me, God tells us, not to worry about our lives, and God feeds the birds, he will feed me. To which I thought, God also tells us in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, the one unwilling to work shall not eat. <laughs> and 1 Timothy 1.8, we're to provide for our relatives. And by the way, just how does God feed the birds? By stretching out some divine hand and dropping food in their little beaks? Now, I'm barring bird feeders from this illustration. The ancient world didn't have the basic necessities. They didn't have bandwidth for feeding birds. God feeds the birds by providing seeds and fish for them to feed themselves. He gave them a honing device or instinct to fly south when there's no food up here. If you're a student at any level, the correct application of this passage is not, God says, don't worry, I won't worry, I won't study for the exam. No, you do your part, 
You read your assignments, you prepare for the exam, you do the reading, and then you take the tests, praying, God, let this accurately reflect what I have learned. You aren't disobeying God by preparing and doing your part. You might be disobeying by after doing your part, obsessing about it and not being able to think about anything else. So here's one practical application when you're worried about something. Ask yourself, is there something I can do to alleviate my stress? <laughs> what do I have control or power over? If you wake up at five in the morning anxious about that item at work that needs to be addressed, maybe you just go and take care of it. If you have a full week coming up with very little margin, maybe you'll be less anxious if you do your meal planning and preparation ahead of time so you're more organized the day of. Stress can be a great motivator, so act on it. But once you do, leave it then in God's hands. Now, I'm not saying this is easy. It is so hard to know what the appropriate amount of attention is to give something. And here, as usual, others in the community of faith can give us perspective on this. <clears throat> Second, when Jesus says, do not worry, he does not mean do not care. He's not invalidating people's needs here, and certainly not their basic physical needs. Now, you can imagine how this can be taken to an extreme. Verse 25, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. And verses 31, 32, so don't worry saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear for the pagans? run after these things. Who wants to be thrown in with the pagans? So some, sadly, Christians have taken these verses to mean that people's basic needs of food and water don't matter, that only their spiritual needs matter. I can think of missionary organizations that want to give out Bibles only to people dying of starvation. Now, I am all for the Bible, people, but let's feed people too. Actually, when Jesus had hungry people in front of him because they were listening all day to his teaching, his response was not, they should keep listening to me. This is better than food. No, he fed them miraculously with the feeding of the 5,000. And he had the disciples be part of that. He said to them, you give them something to eat. He didn't just rain food down from heaven in their mouths. At the end of his ministry in Matthew 25, he tells a parable, the sheep and the goats. He describes the righteous or the blessed ones as what? I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was in need of clothes and you clothed me. Which means Jesus' statement here is not intended to let us wealthy Christians off the hook when it comes to caring for others' needs. I have sometimes been frustrated with sermons that take a simplistic approach to Jesus' bird and flower illustrations. It goes like this. Just as the birds and the flowers are taken care of, so are people. We don't need to worry about anything because God provides and gives food to every single person. Really? Are you really going to quote that to the people in Somalia right now? who are experiencing the most devastating famine in years, that's not only out of touch and unsympathetic, that's downright cruel. John Stott asks in his commentary, if God promises to feed and clothe his children, how is it 
that many are inadequately clothed or undernourished. His answer is a common held fact in relation to hunger and poverty today. The most basic cause of hunger in our world is not an inadequate divine provision, but an unequal human distribution. God has fed the hungry with plenty of food. We just have to share it. And he wants to feed people through us, his agents. You give them something to eat. I'm going to return to this point in a moment, but for now, I want us to see Jesus' command not to worry is not to be used to make us become callous towards people's real needs. And you should feel free to correct someone if they insinuate otherwise. Third, and very briefly, when Jesus says, do not worry, he doesn't mean that's because there's nothing to worry about. <laughs> he doesn't say this because he promises his followers some sort of immunity from everyday problems. It's not as if the rest of the world gets flat tires, lost credit cards, sick kids, unplowed alleys and streets in Minneapolis, and we don't. No, Christians or Jesus followers live in the same flawed world as everyone else. I love how upfront Jesus is about this in verse 34. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Each day has a quota of troubles. It's just going to be that way. Life is hard, even for Christians. What's different about Christians isn't the absence of troubles. It's how we approach those troubles. And here is where I want to lean into Jesus' two main points for this passage that can help us reduce anxiety. Two ideas that will help us obey the do not worry command, this comforting command. Remember, this passage of Scripture falls within the greater passage in Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus lays out how his followers are to be distinct or different, salt and light, countercultural from the rest of the world. The two ways we are to be distinct in relation to worry and its troubles are this, a distinct purpose in life or goal and a distinct perspective in life. So let's look at each of those in turn. First, a distinct or countercultural goal. The first way Jesus seeks to help us not worry is by encouraging us to have the right priorities. He is lovingly encouraging us to reevaluate our focus, what we're chasing after, because he knows that in so doing, that alone may reduce our anxieties. You may have noticed our passage begins with therefore. Bible Interpretation 101 is whenever you see the word, therefore, you look back in the context preceding it to see what that word is there for, since the sections are usually connected in some important way. In this case, Jesus has just outlined in Matthew 6, 19 to 24, how futile it is to make accumulating wealth or treasures on earth of any kind, fame, status, power, our main objective in life. Why? Because it won't last. You look back at verses 19 to 20. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vernon destroy, where thieves are going to break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vernon do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. God loves us. He's trying to give us guidance on the best way to live. 
And contrary to the world's obsession with possessions, Jesus says, don't be deceived into thinking a padded bank account, a nice house, luxury vacations, and promotions and titles are what's fulfilling. There's so much more to life than this. It's not that those are bad things in and of themselves. But God knows that when we chase after those things and make those the focus on our life, we may have a lot and still find ourselves empty. Actor Jim Carrey once said, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so they would know that's not the answer to life. So Jesus concludes that section with verse 24. Not by saying it's really hard to give our allegiance to God and money. He says you cannot serve both God and money. But by actually saying it's not even possible. We can have only one driving force or motivation in life. As Rich shared last week, each of us must make the decision what will be our number one priority in life. Wealth, passing on a nice nest egg to our kids, making a name for ourselves, lots of toys, or giving our lives to the kingdom. There's a connection between money and worry or anxiety. That's why commentators put Matthew 6, verses 19 to 34 together as one section. Just think for a moment about how many advertisements are precisely about what we will eat or drink or wear. If my goal is to have a really nice house outfitted completely with room and board furniture, Nordstrom wardrobe, then how much money I make is the most important criteria by which I make decisions. It matters more than what I might find fulfilling, what the best use of my gifts and passions are that God has given me, or what is even best for my family at a given time. Now, I am not saying the financial piece isn't a factor in the equation in discernment. Of course it is. But it isn't the only factor or the primary one. Andy and I have watched many peers over the years work long hours to make partner in the firm or buy the second home on the lake or go on expensive vacations for the purpose of family bonding time. Now those things are all fine. <laughs> but not if we're doing them because we've bought into the lie I am what I own. That's a race you don't want to enter, Jesus says. It will never be enough and it will ruin you along the way. Your possessions will possess you. Don't go running after those things. In contrast, God, our loving Father, invites us to run hard after what will be fulfilling, what will matter in the end, what will not be taken from us. Verse 33, but seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, Jesus isn't making some sweet bet with us that if we just trust him, we'll get all these possessions and accolades too. His point is that when we have made God and his kingdom his way, our first priority, all other desires and motivations will become subservient to that. If our primary purpose is to live as Jesus' followers, the rest of those decisions will be put in proper place and perspective, and that will reduce some of our anxieties. Not all, to be sure, but some. This is why, Je this is why when Jesus teaches us to pray, 
uh, just a few verses before, Matthew 6, 9 to 10, he tells us to start by saying, Our Father in the heavens, our Father in the heavens, hallowed, make holy your name. Your kingdom come, let your will be done. Do you see that? It's all about your name, your kingdom, your will. God knows we have to start there and reorient, reorient ourselves because, frankly, most of the time, it's about my name, my kingdom, my will. And here is where I want to return to the illustration Jesus gives of birds and flowers and God promising to feed and clothe his children. I mentioned above, Jesus isn't calling us here to be unconcerned with others' needs. In fact, his teaching and life are the very opposite. And when we, his followers, choose to make him number one priority in every way, we will choose a different path on how we spend our money, on what we do with our influence or power, and how we enjoy the gifts God has given us. And the more we are focused on God and his kingdom, the more we will be concerned, anxious, <laughs> about others' well-being. In fact, that's precisely the kind of righteousness, anxiousness, care that God commands. But we will never do that when we are fixated on ourselves. We can only do that if we're freed up to look at others and their needs. In fact, New Testament scholar Dale Bruner says, if we're bothered by how Jesus' illustration of providing for birds and flowers isn't actually the experience in the world today because some are starving, maybe we should take Jesus' words to heart more about not loving money. And then maybe we'd see a different result. He concludes, poor people suffer hauntingly. I do not know what to do about this contradiction except to attempt to be a deeper, more economically concerned for others' disciple and to teach Jesus radically countercultural economic ethic more faithfully. I don't know about you, but I find that convicting. Maybe by stepping back and refocusing my priorities around money, I can not only reduce my own anxiety, but also someone else's if I share what I have for those in need. But we will never do that if we think it all depends on us. And that's what Jesus addresses in his second main point. To reduce our anxiety, to be able to heed this command, it's going to require a countercultural perspective, a different way of viewing the world that, if espoused, has the power to transform how we think about our problems. Most people, whether they are aware of it or not, live as if their lives depend all on them. American individualism feeds this belief. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. You better look out for yourself. No one else is gonna. With that mentality, it naturally causes stress and anxiety. Life is full of problems and uncertainties, even more so when we take it all on ourselves. And there are things we simply cannot be certain of, particularly with regard to the future. So beyond simply embracing uncertainty as a way of life, Jesus offers a perspective which is true, though many don't acknowledge it. We are not alone. We have 
a loving father who is engaged in and invested in our good. He will take care of us. This perspective is embedded throughout this passage. Jesus' bird illustration in verses 26 to 27 shows the reasons the birds can be carefree is because they're in the care of the Heavenly Father who feeds them. And then he adds with traditional rabbinic how much more argument, are you not much more valuable than they? Jesus' point is, if God cares for the birds, won't he also care for you? He repeats this logic in 28 to 28 to 30, this time using the flowers. And this flower he's using, we think, uh, is a flower that bloomed in ancient Palestine for one day. Often, they were then used to throw into the ovens, clay boxes set over boxes, to help heat up a fire when someone, a woman, was in a hurry trying to bake. Now, I love that image because <laughs> I'm often in a hurry trying to make dinner. This beautiful flower with a short lifespan whose ultimate aim, it had, you know, this little life one day, and then its aim is to just help some busy mom make dinner, thrown into the fire. If God cares for those flowers, how much more will your father care for you? Nature can be some of our best preachers. There's something powerful about taking a walk and paying attention to God's providential care reflected in creation. We're reminded he is creator, sustainer, provider. I was talking with a woman from our community this week who lost two loved ones in the span of a week and one person very, very dear to her. She told me on her drive to one of the funerals, she was deeply touched by how God had decorated every single tree from here to where the funeral was. Fixing her eyes on creation ministered to her, reminded her that God is over all. But it isn't just that he's creator and sustainer. He's our father. Verse 32, for the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. This is the difference, Jesus says. Pagans or people who do not know God intimately or who are not in relationship with them think they have to do it all themselves. They don't know they can entrust themselves to their father because he's loving, good, and will take care of them. I think we can all agree worrying is unproductive, yes? I remember uh, memorizing this quote when I was like in seventh grade, probably my youth pastor taught me or said this, worrying is like a rocking chair. It will give you something to do, but it won't get you anywhere, right? That's what's behind Jesus' question in verse 27. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? He might actually be saying this tongue-in-cheek. He knew then what modern medicine has pretty clearly shown. Worrying does not only not lengthen our lifespan, it can actually shorten it and diminish its quality. And that's what's behind Jesus' point also in verse 34. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has plenty of trouble of its own. On a very practical level, Jesus says, worrying doesn't make sense. It's a waste of time, energy, and thought. Every day is going to bring fresh challenges, a regular quota of problems. <laughs> so we don't need to borrow tomorrow's problems for today. 
It's going to be too overwhelming. Here's another principle when we're stuck feeling anxious about something that I've begun practicing this week. We can ask ourselves, is this a tomorrow problem or is this a today problem? If it's a tomorrow problem, maybe I need to let it go and address it then if I've done my part. One commentator invites us to think about it mathematically. If you worry about it tomorrow and it doesn't happen, you've worried about it once for nothing. If you worry about it today and it does happen, you've worried about it twice when you could have worried about it once. <laughs> I don't know if you followed that. Don't waste your energy or time. The same God who helps us today will be there to help us tomorrow. Because worrying isn't only unproductive, really, it's unnecessary. Because it communicates something about God that just is not true, according to Jesus. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. Jesus assures us in verse 32. Interestingly, the only other occasion in which Jesus uses this phrase, your father knows what you need, is just a few verses earlier in Matthew 6, verse 8, where Jesus tells us not to repeat ourselves in prayer. Why? Because we have a father who knows what we need before we even say it. That's just how engaged and attentive to us he is. How often do you reflect on God as a loving parent who is attentive to and eager to meet your needs? Now, this is the stage some of you are in with little babies right now, and I couldn't help but think of uh, our children when they were infants, um, when I think of God being an attentive, caring parent. So this is your world, some of you, and it was years ago for some of us. But as you know, babies get hungry really often. <laughs> and sometimes, especially with the second or third, where you're venturing out more, you can't always time it perfectly to feed them when they're hungry. And when you don't, you experience the consequences of that, right? The survival instinct screaming at the top of their lungs until their needs are met. The worst is when you didn't time it well and you're leaving the museum. Now you have 15 minutes to drive home and their little alarm is going off in the small car, assaulting the ears of everyone in the room, right? And you, you think to yourself, child, when have I ever not fed you? I'm going to get to it. Like, I'm working on it. I'm doing it. Sometimes I'd be heating up the food and I'm working on it. And there they are, you know going crazy. It's like, I'm a responsible, loving parent. You don't need to get worked up for no reason. I've since thought that sometimes that may be how God views me. <laughs> there I am wailing, screaming my head off that such and such hasn't happened yet, and I'm getting all worked up. Meanwhile, maybe he's actually preparing my provision. I just don't see it. Friends, he is a good, good father. And unlike our parents who probably didn't do it perfectly, he knows what we need before we even say it. He cares about us more than we can imagine. He has all the power available, just look at creation, to address our concerns. So here's another practical way to help reduce anxiety. Whenever we are focusing on all the things that could go wrong or uncertain, I've got, you know, we're thinking about this and this. Let's also factor into the equation that we have a loving parent who is able and willing to help us. 
City Church, most of our anxieties in life come from either overestimating the significance of material things, thus we need to embrace Jesus' countercultural purpose of serving God's kingdom, or from underestimating God's active engagement in the world, forgetting we have a good Father who wants what's best for us. Only as we seek to follow Jesus' countercultural purpose in life of serving God's kingdom and countercultural perspective of trusting in a loving parent who cares for us can we obey his do not worry command. May that be increasingly so for us. Let's pray. These are hard words. You know, Lord, this is not the sermon I intended to preach. <laughs> but we believe it's faithful to your text. Would you help us? Would you free us? We are little faiths. We get so seduced by all we see around us that actually doesn't matter. We can't even tell the difference between what matters and doesn't. What our part should be and when enough is enough and let it go. Holy Spirit, you are the counselor and the guide. Help us today to see clearly what to let go of, what to quit chasing after, and what to run hard after for your kingdom. And may we do so with the deep awareness that you are a good, good father who loves us and is attentive and will lead us home. We pray this for our sake, because it's a good way to live, but really for your glory. Amen.